appreciate anyone who can get uh, blessed from the service any way possible, but there's always a dimension of our coming together that isn't translatable over the airwaves. It's something about proximity and being together, and, and I, at least this morning, uh, especially from the middle of our worship service on, really began to sense the presence of God. Sometimes that just happens. There's nothing wrong with you if you didn't, but I just was getting blessed. I can always tell I've really been blessed. Because my voice gets a little hoarse because I'm singing so loud. <laughs> but I get really into it. And, uh, and that presence of God was here. And I also really appreciate that folks were taking advantage of the prayer teams that are here. We really want to not just be singing to the king, as wonderful as that is, and proclaiming truths about the king and preaching the kingdom. But we want to provide spaces where the kingdom can take place, even when we come together on these weekend services. We realize that this isn't the main thing where the kingdom is going to be taking place, but... But I love it when there's prayer available, and uh, I encourage you to be taking uh, advantage of that. Every worship service will be having prayer available, um, and that's what it's there for. Okay, we are in the book of Colossians. Sounds so odd. <laughs> Colossians. Someone suggested we should maybe call it uh, Lucasians, just to kind of transition. Lucasians or Kalukans or something, just to kind of get a transition, but we'll get used to it. Book of Colossians, and... Um, I'm telling this message, uh, Breathing Hope, for reasons that will become clear here in a little bit. And we'll read five verses. We may go over these five verses a couple of times. We don't know, but we're going to go over them this morning. So here's what Paul says. He says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Here's Paul, by the way, who doesn't know these folks, but he's an apostle of this area, and so he's praying for them, and he's thanking God for them. Now here's why he thanks God. Because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all of his people. The faith and love that spring from the hope. Look at that phrase. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true word of the gospel that has come to you. Paul here emphasizes this true word of the gospel because as we'll see later on, uh, he's confronting a false teaching that is afflicting the Colossians. And, and uh, there's often in Paul's introduc- introduction to letters a hint at sort of what his angle is. And so here when he says the true word, it kind of contrasts with this false word he'll be uh, coming against a little bit later on. He says, in the same way the gospel is bearing fruit, euangelion, the good news is bearing fruit, and growing throughout the whole world just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it. And truly understood God's grace. And here again, when Paul says you've truly understood God's grace, uh, there's a little bit of a contrast going on because this false teaching that he's going to be confronting later in the book, uh, they watered down God's grace. They made your standing with God contingent upon or based on uh, re- observing certain holidays and doing certain works and things like that. So Paul's giving a little bit of a dig here. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. And who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Epaphras, so far as we can tell, came from this region, became a Christian, uh, got some training with the apostles, and then goes back to this region and plants these churches. And so he's part of the apostolic network. And so that's why Paul here says that he he ministered on our behalf. He's, He's one of our representatives. In contrast to those false teachers that are plaguing Colossians, Epaphras is one of us. He comes from this apostolic group. And then he also has reported back to Paul and others uh, kind of what's been going on there. And that's how Paul knows about both the positive sides of what's going on in, Col- in Colossae, but also the negative side of, of what's hassling them. And that's what motivates this letter. 
breathing hope. Pray with me for a moment. Father, we have zero confidence in human words, eloquent speech, uh, words of, of human wisdom. It, it, whatever it does, it doesn't build the kingdom, except insofar as you, Holy Spirit, infuse it with your authority. And so we're asking you, Holy Spirit, to come this moment right now and, and take these words and invest them with your authority and build your kingdom with them. To those who are in this auditorium or those who are listening through podcasts or other means, open our ears, our minds, our hearts afresh, anew, to hear as though for the first time the euangelion, the good news, and the hope that that gives us. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's look at the logic of this passage. This is the logic, the outline of the logic that flows from Paul's thanksgiving. Paul gives thanks. And the reason he gives thanks is because he's heard of the faith and love of the Colossians. Right? I give thanks because I've heard of your faith and your love for all of God's people. That faith, he says, springs from, arises from, is caused by a hope that they have, which is stored in heaven. And that hope that is stored in heaven was brought about by the gospel that bears fruit. And that's, how this, that's how this passage flows. That's the, the logic that flows from Paul's thanksgiving. Which, if you think about it, leads to this. Here's the logic that leads to Paul's thanksgiving. First, the gospel had to come. The gospel is the foundation for the whole thing. Epaphras brought the good news that bears fruit. It has this power, and the Colossians believed it. And so when he, when he preached the good news and they believed it, that brought about a hope that is stored in heaven. Right? So the gospel produces the hope. The hope then brings forth faith in Christ and a love for all people. And that is why Paul gives thanks. Uh, the, the, the hope uh, sprang forth, brought forth faith and love, and that's why Paul gives thanks. Now what I find really interesting about this mapping here is the important role that hope has. Hope is the foundation, or the originator, of of faith and love. If hope ain't there, there's no faith and love. Now, the gospel had to bring about the hope, but the hope had to be there because it's what brought about the faith and love. There's other passages that make love seem at the foundation for everything else. And, And there's a sense in which that is true. But clearly from this passage, we see that there's an important sense in which hope is the foundation for everything. The hope that the gospel brings is what fuels the faith that we have in Christ and then the love that is birthed in us towards all people. See how that works. Hope is, is the foundation of all of this. Uh, it is really the essence of, 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 of who we are. It, it, it's the main fuel that our lives run on. Think for a moment of times, if you can, when you've lost hope in something. Try to identify with that. Uh, one of the ways you know how central hope is to us is the pain it causes when we lose it. First time I ever remember entering into a sense of despair. I shared this about 10 years ago, but most of you I don't think have heard this story before. But I was six, about 16 years old. And I, in my own mind, I was pretty hot stuff. Oh, Yes. Uh, I, I matured a little early, so I was good at athletics. I went two years uh, in junior high school uh, with only one defeat um, in, in, in track. I was a half miler uh, and a miler, and so I thought I was pretty good stuff. And my dream was to be an Olympic marathoner. 
That's one of my dreams. That's my main dream. I wanted to be an Olympic marathon or an Olympic miler. Or, you know, I just wanted to be in Olympics and famous for my running. Because I was pretty good. Did I tell you that I went two years with only one DPL guy? So I, I was pretty hot stuff in my own mind. Age 16, they had this junior Olympics. And they would have it at the state level. And if you qualified, made the top two, then you went down to the, the nationals. Uh, down in Omaha, Nebraska. And I entered the Junior Olympics at the age of 16, and I came in second place. And another 100 yards, I would have caught the guy, really. It was, uh, but uh, I ran a 4.45, which was about know, six, seven seconds better than I'd ever done before. I was pretty impressed with myself, a 4.45 in the mile, and uh, almost caught the guy. So I qualified for nationals. So uh, we, uh, we, you had to pay your own way and all this kind of stuff. It was not that big of a deal, really, but to me it was. So we drove, we drove down to Omaha, my dad and I, and, and he even called some of his business buddies down in Omaha, Nebraska, and it was a big shindig, and they show up on the Saturday, and we're having the Junior Olympics, and I'm there, and I'm wearing a shirt that says Super Jock on it. <laughs> it's kind of tight, because I like to show off my muscles. I was so into it. Here's the deal that they had sent out to everybody, allegedly, the qualifying times of, uh, uh, to, to get to, to na- all those who qualified, who got the top two in all the states, uh, they sent out the times. And I never got that printout. I never got that memo. I only found out after the race that I had the second slowest qualifying time in the nation, <laughs> which explains why there's only 20 people in this race. I was thinking there should be 100. We should have qualifying heats and all of that. That's what I was expecting. I get down there. There's only one shot. It's, it's the final. There's only about 20 people here. And worse, and they, they all... You know, I thought I was kind of mature for a 16-year-old, but these people look like they're at least 20, and they're tall and skinny, and I'm getting worried now. Uh, but what really worried me was they staggered us, and they staggered us according to our qualifying times, which I never got. And uh, I was on the scratch line. <laughs> this isn't good. Now, that means I didn't qualify for anything. So there's these, all these great runners, and there's me. But I'm still, I still don't know this, and I'm still thinking of hot stuff, so I'm going to go for it in this Omaha, Nebraska uh, stadium with all the bigwigs there and my dad's friends, and he wants me to do him proud. <laughs> and so the, my strategy back then was I was never that fast, but I had a lot of stamina. And so I would always just go out and gun it and run everybody in the ground. Oh, that, that was me. I just run everybody in the ground. So I usually go and take the lead, get as big a lead as I can and hang on to it. So I go out fast, as I usually do. In fact, I went out faster than I've ever gone out. When the stagger finally broke at 200 meters, that's the first half a lap, I went out faster than I'd ever gone out, and I was still in last place. <laughs> this is starting to look bad. By the end of the first lap, uh, there was uh, oh, about five seconds between me and the next lap, which in one lap is quite a bit, uh, between me and the next last place guy, and he was quite a ways behind the pack. The pack was just moving away. I could not believe it. I seriously thought at one point, maybe I got in the wrong race. Uh, <laughs> this was one of the fastest quarter miles I'd ever run. And I'll suck an air already, and I'm in last place. By a half mile point, that pack is way over there. I got a little, you know, I, I, but 10 seconds between me and the other last place guy, but the pack is, is way down. Probably he didn't get the memo either. And, and I, I am, I'm already exhausted. This is, I almost ran my best uh, half mile time in the first half of the mile race. And then the nightmare begins to descend on me. It was just, I don't know why I didn't quit. I should have sprained my ankle or something, but I kept going. <laughs> And, and it, it's like running in slow motion. You get so tired, and you're just watching that pack go farther and farther away. And I'm wearing super jock. <laughs> it, it was, and, and the last, the, the, and I'm just sucking air. My lungs are burning. And finally, uh, the pack ends. 
a good half a lap ahead of me. I mean, it was at least 20, 30 seconds, except for there was one other guy. He was only about 20 seconds ahead of me. But I, it was so odd as I'm running there. All, the, the audience got so quiet. The stadium was just so quiet. I almost wanted to, like, holler, talk among yourselves, <laughs> as everyone's kind of just waiting for me to finish. And all you can hear is click, click, <laughs> click, click, <laughs> Click, click, super jock. It was, it, was, it was a nightmare. It was, it was a nightmare. It was just the pain was, and the embarrassment. And it, it was at that moment I realized, I mean, you know, it's really easy to be a big fish in a very small pond, but you get in the ocean and the competition is a whole lot tougher. Uh, and, and my dream of being an Olympic runner, miler, marathon or whatever, it burst at that moment and despair set in. It was despair. It was embarrassment. It was painful. But it was just despair. I lost that precious hope that I had. It worked some destructive consequences, as often happens when you lose hope. I had been flirting with some drugs and alcohol and stuff like that, flirting with it. But because I wanted to be a good runner, I never got too much into it. But after this, I said, screw it, and kind of just fell off the deep end. The, the hope was gone. And when we lose hope and stuff that was dear to us, it's painful and can cause destructive things in our life. Now, God's always at work to bring good out of evil, and so he did bring some good out of this. I got so messed up, screwed up, turned upside down in a year's period of time that by the age of 17, I, I surrendered my life to Christ. I don't know if I would have done that if I was still trying to be a super jock. Um, I, I surrendered my life to Christ, which is really, really good news. Unfortunately, that only lasted a year. because so I went out to the University of Minnesota majoring in philosophy. It took about one semester for me to have my faith completely blown sky high. couldn't find an intelligent Christian for my life. And came to the conclusion that it's not true as much as I wanted to believe it. And I'd already tried the Eastern religious stuff. Uh, you know, gave that a, a, a good shake for a couple of years. Uh, and I came to the conclusion that that wasn't true. And so if Christianity, which I'd put all my eggs in that basket for a year, and it felt so good to have meaning in life, if that wasn't true, then I came to the conclusion that we can't ever know truth. If there is a truth, the, the universe is absurd, it's pointless, it's meaningless. And now I lost hope in everything. What happened to me with regard to that being an Olympic runner now happened to life in general. It's like all of life become, became running this awkward, pointless, air-sucking, painful half a lap in a stadium that's looking on with a sense of pity towards you. That existence was painful. And I really began to wonder, why do you do anything? I mean, when you lose hope, why do you do anything? I, I, I realize everything we do, we do it for, for some reason, for for some hope to make something better. And at this point in my life, thinking that the universe is just going to eventually wind down and turn to a black nothingness, a state of equilibrium, uh, darkness. If that's the end of all things, then what's the point of anything? Why? You know, we, we talk about leaving the world a better place, uh, that our kids will have a better life. Wonderful. We build cities and we're trying to always uh, have good overcome evil. And at this point in my life, I was wondering why, honestly. Because the universe doesn't care if you're a Mother Teresa or an Adolf Hitler. And when it's all said and done and everything's burned out, what difference will anything make? It's really hard to get out of bed uh, when you have that kind of despair going on. So we are hopers. That's the core of who we are. We live by hope. There's got to be a future. We don't try to make things better unless we hope that we can. We don't get married unless there's a hope that it, that it will make our lives better. We don't stay married unless there's hope for the marriage. Uh, we don't bring children in this world unless we have some kind of hope for them. 
It's hard to, to, to work on anything or to exercise or to go to the doctors or do anything significant unless there's a hope that that's going to make some kind of a difference. You don't go to a voting booth unless you hope it's going to make a little bit of difference, which is why some of us have quit voting. Uh, you know, there's got to be some kind of hope there. You have to have some kind of trust in it. You see, hope drives everything. It's the gas that the human engine runs on. And when we lose it, we're sucking air big time. Uh, Emil Bruner was a theologian who said this. He said, uh, what oxygen is to the lungs, hope is to the meaning of life. What oxygen is to the lungs, hope is to the meaning of life. And I think back on that, that last half a mile or half, half a lap that I was running in the Junior Olympics, and, and sucking air, just I was suffocating in, in, the, in my own humiliation and physically uh, on that track. And what Emil Bruner is saying here is that that's what life is like. We're suffocating if we don't have hope. Some kind of ultimate hope, something to drive us. You can't live that way very long. It's like lungs to the air. Everything we do springs from hope. In ancient Rome, they had a lot of stupid ideas, but they also had some, some, some good ones. And they had a Latin expression. It was dum spiro spero. Dum spiro spero, which means I, while I breathe, I hope. And that was really capturing, I and mean, this, is, this was a Stoic saying, it captures the essence of how how, how, how crucial hope is to us. It's air to us. We need hope. We live by hope. Do a moment, an inventory right now. Uh, let's take a moment. Let's pause. And just assess in your own life. Kind of your, where are you with hope and inventory? What do you hope in? Right here, right now. Holy Spirit, help us to be honest about this and real about this. Don't judge it. Don't evaluate it. Anything. Just notice it. What is your hope in? And also, maybe, where are you struggling with hope, or maybe where have you lost hope? Holy Spirit, reveal this to us. I'm just trying to get pegs to hang the rest of this message on. Areas where you have hope, are struggling with hope, have lost hope. Holy Spirit helps to be real about this. Some here maybe are hoping that you'll someday get married. Because you're single and you don't want to be. Others maybe have lost hope that you're ever going to get married. Maybe that causes kind of a suction in your life. Maybe there are some who are going to hear this message and they are married and they've lost hope in it. Sucking air. Maybe there's some who are hoping for a cure for some disease or ailment they have. And maybe there's some who have lost hope in that. Holy Spirit just revealed to us what we, right now what he wants to work on in this message. And, and have that, that in mind. What area? And, and most of all, what, what ultimately is your hope? What, what do you want your life to be? What does it count for? What's its significance? Really? How does this narrative end that you're in? Holy Spirit, help us to see this. Be real with it. Nothing defines the story we're in like the hope that we have. It's what drives us. Now, we hope in a lot of little things and we hope in a lot of big things. And there's a lot of things that, that, that can motivate our hope. I mean, one of the things I encourage people is that if you're dealing with hopelessness in some significant area, it may be the case that you should consider counseling. Uh, and if you can't afford counseling, we've got this lay counseling center that we advertised earlier. Sometimes it's worth looking at, since the brain is a physical organism, when a chemical is mixed up, it can create, just by chemical imbalances, a sense of hopelessness. No matter what you believe or how good things are going, you feel hopeless for no reason whatsoever other than the chemicals aren't working. So that's an okay thing to look into. 
But what I want to talk about now is the ultimate foundation for all ultimate hope. And this is what Paul's getting at in this passage. It's, it's that from which love and faith spring from, and everything that is of the kingdom springs from this hope. It comes from the gospel. Paul says that the foundation of this is the gospel. The word there is euangelion. We've talked about it a number of times. And it literally means good news. Good news. It's not a word that was invented by the, the New Testament authors, Jesus, or anything like that. It had widespread currency already in the world. They talked about the euangelion, the good news, quite a bit. Most of it, in fact, almost all of it, had to do with Caesar. When Caesar was coming into town, it was good news. Uh, when Caesar had a son, it was good news. When Caesar was going to do some good, do, good deed, they'd run and tell everybody about it. And they proclaimed the euangelion, the good news. When the Gospels use this term to describe what Jesus is doing, they're intentionally subverting the, the political ramifications of it when Caesar does it. Uh, they're, they're subverting all that. One of the most interesting ways that the good news uh, uh, was, was proclaimed was when the Romans, any area of the Roman Empire, went into battle. And they would have as part of their army a runner. He was called a herald runner because he would run and proclaim the victory. And uh, so when, when, when it was sure that the, uh, whatever part of the Roman Empire was fighting there, and that the Romans were going to win, he would be dispatched to run back to the hometown and to proclaim the good news, the good news uh, of, of the victory that the Romans have won. Or, in some cases, it might be the bad news, and he'd say, run for your life because we just got our butts kicked. Uh, but hopefully it would be the good news. He was the herald runner, the one who proclaimed the good news. Paul portrays Epiphas as a as one of those runners, a herald runner. And Epiphas runs to the Colossians, and he proclaims the good news. There's a battle that was fought, and you guys, we won. Jesus Christ has done battle for us. He's battled sin, and he won. He's battled death, and he won. He battled the devil, and he won. And we are the benefactors. I got you and Galeon for you. I've got good news because of what Jesus did. We are forgiven because of what Jesus did. Sin is not held against us any longer because of what Jesus did. Uh, sin is not the barrier between us and God anymore. Because of what Jesus did, God's love wins. Because of what Jesus did, we can have hope because of what Jesus did. He'll bring all things together under one head, Jesus Christ. Because of what he did, you don't need to live in regrets anymore. Because of what he did, you don't need to live an air-sucking, meaningless life anymore. Rather, because of Jesus and the battle he fought and the battle he won, our lives can be part of a story that is unimaginably beautiful and it goes on forever and ever. And that's not wishful thinking. That's the good news. That's the reality of what Jesus Christ has done. Amen. So the Colossians believe this. They receive this. And that is their hope. That is their hope. And it, it, you can't have a better hope than that. And the hope in the New Testament, know, know this, is it's not wishful thinking. Like, oh, I hope that's true. No, it, it's, it's, it's more of a confident expectation. It's, an, it's a way of anticipating the future. Um, and, and so here are the Colossians now who receive this, this message. It completely changes the narrative they live in. The ending now is the victory of God in Jesus Christ. A victory that they already are participating in. And that gives them hope. Paul then says, and I love this, the hope is stored up for you in heaven. Interesting, he puts the hope itself stored up in heaven. It probably means something like that which we hope for is stored up in heaven, but the two are so closely aligned in Paul's thought that he says, our hope is stored up in heaven. He uses this word, apokemai. Apokemai, and it means to store up or to set aside or to put in safekeeping. And so the hope that we have is put in safekeeping. It's stored up as in a vault. 
and it's in the heavenly realm. And when Paul says it's in the heavenly realm, the cash value of that is that that is the domain of God's reign. The domain of God's uncontested reign. Uh, it contrasts, stored up in heaven, contrasts with everything that is stored up on earth. Because on earth, the reign of God is contested. The domain of God is contested on earth, in fact, throughout the cosmos right now. There are a lot of other domains vying for power, aren't there? Uh, you've got Satan and the principalities and powers, and they've got a domain of responsibility, and they're exercising some of their say-so. And a lot of it is at cross-purposes with God. And we have our own domains, right? We have our own domains, make our own decisions and our own areas of responsibility. And we can either bring those into alignment with God's reign, which is what he wants us to do, but we also, with our free will, can choose to go in a different direction. So this world is all screwed up, and the cosmos is all screwed up, because God's domain is contested. There's a, you know, he'll eventually win all of this, of course. In principle, he already has in Christ. But this is why everything on earth is iffy. Things can go a lot of different ways because there's a lot of different uh, agents, angelic and human, who are voting how it should go. We vote with every decision that we make. And so nothing on this earth is really that safe. Robbers in this world can break into just about any vault you could possibly create. They can break in and steal what's on the inside. But this hope, see, this is the cash value of this, and it's beautiful. This hope is stored up in the vault of heaven, which means you can't touch this. Uh, everything else in this world is iffy. It's transitory. It's, it's, it's contingent. It's, it, 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 it's perishable. You can hope for it in a while, but it may go away from you. But this hope that comes from the good news of the victory of Jesus Christ, this hope cannot be squashed. It cannot be robbed. It cannot be watered down. It cannot be destroyed. Why? Because it's stored up in heaven. It's not stored up anywhere here on earth. You can lose hope in just about everything. In fact, you can lose hope in everything else. Think about it. I hope it doesn't happen this way, but it might. I mean, you can, sometimes friends betray you. Your best friends betray you. And you can lose hope in friends. I know folks who have done that. Sometimes marriages don't work, and you can lose hope in your marriage. Uh, sometimes, in fact, eventually your health fails you, and you can lo you lose hope in your health and, and, and finding a cure, uh, or that you're going you're gonna to get, get, get through this one. Uh, you know, sometimes you, can, you lose hope in the way the world's going, in the way the country is, in the way society is. You lose hope in politicians. Can you believe that? You can lose hope in that whole regime. Uh, you, you, you lose hope that, that, that in your kids, everything here can go in a direction that is contrary to what you would want and to what God would want, but it happens. Why? Because this is a contested zone. But you can't lose hope. Not if you're thinking straight. You can't lose hope in, 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 in the gospel of Jesus Christ because this one's stored up in heaven. It's not stored up on earth. It's not dependent on anything on earth. And it's also not dependent on how you feel about it. If you're one of those folks who, part of having, living in this contested zone, we take hits in different ways, and you might have a brain that's firing wrong, so you always feel hopeless. Thankfully, God doesn't store up your hope in your brain. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. You don't even have to feel hopeful for this to be true about you. Just know that it is. Just know that it is. It's the truth that's secured in the heavenly realm. Paul, Paul, in speaking about this, he gets, this is the most excited verse, I think, in the New Testament. It's one of the most grammatically torturous ones, because I think Paul is just so excited, he just can't get his grammar right. Uh, but it's just so beautiful. And he's talking about hope. He's talking about hope here. The, the thing is this, he's, he's showing us that our hope is not only based on, but it's identical with the love that God has for us in Jesus Christ. And, uh, and, and the, the logic here says, God is all-powerful, and his love is unwavering and unimprovable, and therefore your hope is invincible. Like that down. 
I'm going to tweet on that today. I, I, that's, a good, that's a good word. God's all-powerful. His love is unwaverable, so your hope is invincible. All-powerful, unwavering, invincible. All-powerful, unwavering, invincible. So here's what he says in Romans. He just goes crazy here. This is, this is really good stuff. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. If God was willing to do that, willing to do that how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Do you think God would hold back anything on you if he's already given you Jesus Christ? He's already, he's already given you the, the whole thing. He's given you himself. Jesus Christ is God. Uh, you, you can trust him with everything else uh, because he's already given us himself. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chose? And here Paul's looking at condemnation, uh, talking to people who are feeling condemned and you're on the outside or you're going to lose or something like that. Who will bring any charge against... Who would dare? That's what he's saying. Because it's God who justifies. God is, in case you didn't know, the highest court of appeal anywhere, anytime, among anyone. We're talking about God. And so if God justifies you, it's going to be hard for any prosecutor to really get a word in. He's God. All right. And that's exactly what Paul says. That, well, who then, who then can condemn? No one. No, because God justifies you. And here's how he justifies you. Christ Jesus, who's the only sinless human being who would be in a place to prosecute you like the woman that was caught in the act of adultery, well, he's already cast his vote in too. Christ Jesus who died, and here's where Paul starts to get stumbling because he's so excited. More than that, who was raised to life, he is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So the only one who could possibly prosecute us and bring a case against us is now our, 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 our attorney defending us. As he's speaking metaphorically here, but that'd be like, that'd be like if, 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 you know, I'm thinking of John Edwards and, and the case that he's in right now. What would happen if everybody who could possibly prosecute him all of a sudden decided to become his defense lawyers? Uh, he'd be a happy guy, I would imagine. Uh, well, that's what's happened in the heavenly realm, something like that. And then Paul says, Here's the cash value of it all. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he could say, what can separate us from the love of Christ? He already just said it can't be our sin. No, that's been taken care of. God justifies us. So what then can separate us from the love of Christ? Well, shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness, just referring to the most extreme kind of poverty, where you don't even have underwear, okay? We shall nakedness or danger or sword, can that separate us from the love of Christ? And Paul says, as it is written, for our sake we face death, all, uh, uh, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. What Paul is saying there is this. Uh, you think those things can separate us from, love, uh, from the love of God? We eat trouble for breakfast. All day long we're slaughtered. We fulfill that verse in the Old Testament. Man, it, it, that's our way of life. You talk about persecution and sword. Hello, I'm writing this from prison. <laughs> no, he says, nah. Forget about it. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In all these things, we're more than conquerors. And now, in case we didn't get it, he repeats himself all over again. For I am convinced, here's these waxing, waxing eloquent. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. Okay, Paul, we get it. We get it. He's just like, you guys, he has to make sure he covers everything. Neither, neither cockroaches or mosquitoes or beavers or bulls. Okay, we get it. None of that will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. He's all-powerful. The love is unwavering and unimprovable, and therefore the hope is invincible. Now, when our hope is in that, there's nothing that can possibly take it away. 
That means the cancer that you have and the, the financial struggles that you have and the, the failures that you've been through and maybe still struggling with and, and, and the betrayals that you've gone through, the hopelessness that you maybe at times experience, it can't separate you from that ultimate hope, the love of God revealed in Christ Jesus. You and Galeon, he's fought the battle and he's won, and we are the benefactors. Ah, that, that is, that's the goodest good news you can get. It, it doesn't get gooder than that. It really doesn't. Uh, and, and if we internalize it, it changes everything. I'll, I'll, I'll end with one more word here, and it's an important word. And that is, it's very important to re- see here that Paul says that in all these things, we're more than conquerors. Because they can't separate us from the love of God. And that's the only thing we got going for us. In all these things, we're more than conquerors. Notice that Paul does not say we conquer all these things. Actually, he's saying the opposite. Of course we go through these things. There's hardship, there's trials, there's, there's persecution, there's famines, there's poverty, extreme poverty, there's danger, there's executions. Did Paul go through those things? Yeah. All the early disciples went through those things. In fact, you think about it, Jesus went through those things. In fact, throughout history, followers of Jesus have been and still are going through those things. The majority of Christians live in, in, in the world today, live in a, a, a state that's at least close to poverty. We go through those things, and anybody who tells you that the gospel promises that you won't go through those things is selling you something. Honestly. Now, of course, you know, you know I mean, there's, there's a version of the gospel that's just sort of like, hey, let's be positive about everything. You know, it's not going to happen. Look on the bright side of life. My grandpa used to say, if you look on the bright side of life, life will look brightly back at you. There's the gospel. That's not the gospel. That's being happy, and I'm all for being happy. And every, okay. But there's nothing distinct about hoping that bad stuff doesn't happen to you. Everybody does that. What's, what's unique about that? The, God doesn't promise that we're going to have a nice, nice, nice life. Why? Because this is, not, this is a contested domain. This is the area where things are contested. Now, eventually, now the good news is that he wins, he wins, and he's victorious. Right now, however, there's a battle going on, and we take hits, and it's kind of random. We did that whole crap happens series. So I, as I'm standing up here, and I know this is not my job description, according to a lot of people, because I'm supposed to be the cheerleader for, for how to have your best life now. I can't tell you you're going to have your best life now. Right now, your life might suck. It really might. And it might just be, how, I don't know different than this, but it might be that that bump that you found two days ago is, in fact, cancer. It might be that that ailment that you're struggling with this time around is going to get you. One of them will. I, sorry. I won't get people running the aisles a lot with this message right here, but this is reality. It could be that, that, that your marriage isn't going to make it. I hope it does, but some don't, and, and uh, your finances might never recover. You might never, might, have the, might never have the retirement that you thought you were going to have. You might never be able to retire. Maybe you'll never get that house back, you know, or maybe you're not going to be able to hang on to that house. You know, maybe, maybe the child's not going to live. That's reality. Uh, all day long, we face death. Um, and for anyone to stand up here and say, oh, no, no, because you're a believer, that can't happen to you? It happens to everybody. We get this weird, especially in America, it's just part of this American exceptionalism. We get an exception clause for everything. Oh, yeah, it happens to everyone else, but not to us. Why? Because we're special. We're the special, blessed people. Now, you know what? We're not. Uh, we're as loved as everybody else, but there, there's no exception clause here. No, no, get out of trouble for free card. We would like that. But see, thankfully, Paul says, in all these things, we're more than conquerors. 
Uh, it's precisely because we're in these things that we're more than conquerors. If this was some little magical thing that made you skirt all the trouble of life, you would just be a conqueror. Hey, I kicked the cancer. Oh, you're a conqueror. Wonderful. But here's how you live in a way that's more than conquer, uh, more than a conqueror. You hold fast to the hope in all things. You hold fast to the hope of Jesus Christ as you're going through all things. So that as you go through the hardship, never forget that ultimate hope. He's fought the battle. He's won. And the story has an unimaginably beautiful ending. So whatever narrative you're in, run it out to the end. And the end is all things being reconciled in Jesus Christ. The end is God wins. The end is the victory of God over all darkness. Make sure that in your mind, as you think about life, you include that ending. Otherwise, suck has the last word. Death has the last word. No, don't live in that. In all these things, we're more than conquerors. In the cancer, in the divorce, in the moral failure. If you hold on to the, the hope that, that is in Jesus Christ, in the struggles, in the friendship betrayals, in the financial disasters, in the worrying about your kids, I love it that Paul, Paul never pretends in his, in his writings. He's honest. Right towards the end of his life, in Timothy, he writes, he goes, everyone's uh, left me, everyone's betrayed me. He's not like this, hey, it's all right. No, no he says, everyone's left me, but I fought the good fight. And my hope is, is, is laid up in Jesus Christ. In Corinthians, he says, Ah, we're bruised, we're battered, but we're not crushed. No, but, but maybe we're taking beatings. I mean, he's pretty honest about what goes on. He's not one of these little cheerleaders. No, because he won't cheapen the gospel. The hope is so beautiful that it dwarfs in significance all of the things we go through. Hardship, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Yeah, 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 it happens, yeah. The hope is stored up in heaven. It's eternal and unshakable. Our altars will be open as uh, we uh, close in prayer. And uh, I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come up as I, I close. So if, if you're here and you want to pray about something, I encourage you to come and take advantage of this. Maybe you just need to get your head on straight or heart on straight regarding this hope. You're struggling with some despair of some sort. Or maybe something else altogether. But I close with this. Father, as we leave here, I pray, God, Holy Spirit, you'll keep this message seared into our hearts and make us a people of hope. A people who see beyond the struggles and the war and the, the failures and the pain, and who live in the reality of uh, the hope that the good news creates, that we are your people, and in the end, Lord, you win, and we are in you. That is our hope. Help us to live that, internalize it, breathe it, and live with intentionality out of that. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's hopeful people said, Amen. God bless you guys. Go on home.